Hi, listeners. Welcome to It's the People, an interview series where we explore the inside story of building companies and investment portfolios with high-octane founders, limited partners, and fund managers. We hope these conversations push you to be even better at what you do. This week, my partner Andy Greenfield and I had the opportunity to interview an exceptional entrepreneur, Mark Bernstein, who is the co-founder and CEO of Balto Software, the number one real-time technology for contact centers that has analyzed over 60 million calls and helped thousands of professionals. We discussed a broad range of topics, including whether entrepreneurs are born or built, transitioning from sales to CEO, when it's time to be nice, and when it isn't, what it's like to transform an industry and then to play a catalytic role in doing it again, and so much more. Before we begin, I want to note that this interview is for informational purposes only and that the opinions expressed should not be relied on as a basis for investment decisions. TIA Ventures is a seed stage fund focusing primarily on early stage B2B technology companies with an obsessive focus on end customers and early stage teams. To kick it off, Mark, why don't you just give us, you know, 60 seconds about who is Mark Bernstein? Oh, geez. Uh, who is Mark Bernstein? Um, well, I am the founder of Balto um, here in St. Louis. Um, that's kind of, I guess, the main identity that I have nowadays, because when you start to found a company, that's kind of uh, who you are. Um, and I grew up in the uh, Washington, D.C. area, um, a little suburb called Chevy Chase, sandwiched between uh, Bethesda and Washington, D.C., uh, came out to St. Louis uh, for school, um, undergrad at WashU in St. Louis, and I studied uh, entrepreneurship, marketing, and psychology. Uh, after just a couple years in the B2B tech world and the sales world, um, I noticed a problem that um, was you know, killing me on my sales calls and I wanted to solve for others and uh, quickly started a company. So you know, now I'm 28 and we have uh, over 100 people at the company and we are... Uh, aggressively moving to build a billion dollar company. Oh, Mark, thank you for the intro. Let me start out by saying that we think you're crazy. And here's why. You are formerly a personal trainer. And from what we know, you're not 220 pounds of rippling steel, six foot three inches tall, etc. So you're an underdog there. You're a nice guy in a world of sharp-elbowed entrepreneurs. You're in St. Louis. You're not in Silicon Valley or New York. You didn't go to Harvard or Stanford. You went to school in the Midwest. And you're competing against billion-dollar valuation companies, big behemoths with hundreds of millions of dollars of cash. So like, where does this come from? Are, are you crazy? Do you have a chip on your shoulder? you know, help us understand that you're not insane. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I think that, I think that everything looks insane if you look at it from the macroist of macro perspectives. Uh, when you look at like all of those variables together, you go, whoa, that is a completely unconquerable challenge. Uh, and I'm, Focusing on the last bit about uh, you know going up against uh, folks who have hundreds of millions of dollars in cash and you know, billion dollar valuations, um, but when you look at the micro level, and the micro level, you know, I think for a lot of 
um, you know, fast growing tech companies should be very simply, what is the problem you're solving? When you look at the problem you're solving and you notice that no one else is solving the problem and then you build a solution and your solution solves that problem better than all the other solutions, that's the fuel you need <laughs> to get to the next milestone and to be able to hire you know, uh, you know, new engineers and and build a, a bigger and better product and advance your go to market and you know have more marketing dollars, more sales dollars, and you know it's a race. Um, and the because it's a race to build to capture as much market share you, as you can when you're building a tech company like Balto, it means that if you can just get a couple years head start, then you can take away the whole thing. And it doesn't matter whether you're a billion dollar company or whether you're a uh, you know a ten million dollar company. Uh, you know the the company that has built a raving customer base and a great product and a good go to market strategy is the one that you know often can pull away. So um, I think it's a matter of just looking at the problem like in a very micro sense, um, and then all of that doesn't feel so scary. And that and that's a nice answer. And you've jumped right up to today, but let us push you a little bit here because you're a guy who you grew up in the East coast. You end up, you know, you're a personal trainer. And as I said, you know, people walk into gyms and they're looking for the guy who looks like if you remember Fabio or Arnold Schwarzenegger or whoever, uh, you're not that guy. You're doing a startup. And most people say, oh, great, I'm going to go to Cal, you know, go to Silicon Valley. I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to go to some hub. And you go, no, I'm going to stay in the town I went to college in. So what, what's inside of Mark Bernstein that says, you know what? No, forget the conventional wisdom. I don't care. Or yeah. maybe you do care. Uh, Andy, so I'll, I'll push back on um, the exact example you gave of you know, wh what you're looking for in a personal trainer. Uh, first of all, people usually aren't looking for personal trainers. They're not usually uh, going out saying, I'd like to go find one. Uh, usually what happens is someone talks to you and says, hey, how are your goals going? But in a not salesy, sleazy way. And you say, honestly, not great. You say, uh, why is it not going great? And they say this, this, and this. And you say, well, if those things aren't going great, uh, let me actually, I could just give you one recommendation or one idea that would help that go better. And then they put your recommendation or idea in place to go, whoa, that person just helped me and it was free. And now we have a little bit of trust. So I think that that analogy, people aren't looking for the the biggest personal trainer they can possibly find. They're looking for the one that cares about them. They're not looking for the uh, you know, the company, they don't go on the website and say, okay, let's make sure you're located in Silicon Valley before I buy your technology. <laughs> They're looking for the technology that solves their needs. So I think people uh, often way over index on things that are very visible and things that are very flashy. Um, and visible and flashy often does build momentum and does have benefits. And I think, by the way, it's one of the things you don't get in St. Louis and you don't get when you're 28 is being able to bring uh, high visibility and high flashiness to the org early. But then you build an awesome product and you build an awesome customer base and uh, you are you are able to bring on great talent. And those people can add flashiness that you previously couldn't. Um, so I, I really think it's a very uh, tangible problem 
when when you just like break it down to its components, I think people focus on the wrong things. But let me let me have it. I think that's well said and perfectly well framed. But it's not at all a dodge of what Andy's asked a few times now. But it's it's not getting at one thought that I'd love your two cents on. You know, for me personally. I, you know, I came out of school, I did management consulting, I, I was corporate oriented, I did management consulting, I had eyes towards law school, um, which I never ended up doing, I then did venture capital, and then found myself as the first employee of Marquee Jet, and from there, I hooked, got entrepreneurship tapped into my veins, and I've never wanted to leave and haven't left, and, but I, so I was, I'd say I was not entrepreneur born, I was entrepreneur built. You yourself, I think, have been entrepreneurial earlier. You know, are you, were you always going to be an entrepreneur? Or do you think that you found this idea organically working in a sales organization and realizing real time would be better and thus you're just living out the idea? Or are you just, you know, you're going to bring this to the moon and do it again and again and again because you're just entrepreneur born? So I don't consider myself entrepreneur born. Um, and in fact, I'd say, um, you know, one of our other founders and COO, Chris, I do consider entrepreneur born, you know, ever since he was six, his family would sit around the kitchen table and say, so we're going to build businesses together. We're, we're a business building family. Um, and you know, he grew up knowing I want to be a business builder. Um, you know, the way I got into, uh, building a personal training business is I loved physical fitness. I kept learning about it. I wanted to learn more and more and more. And then I said, ah, you know, here's these really cool guys walking around the gym with this this uh, trainer uh, sticker on the back of their shirts. I want one of those. So I said, let me go get a certification. I got a certification. Said, great, I'm certified now. What do I do with this? And I was like, I have, well, I guess I should train people. So I sent out an email to the community listserv, uh, the BCC, Bethesda Chevy Chase listserv. And I sent an email saying, hi, uh, I'm a personal trainer. I'm 18 years old and just about to go to school at WashU. So you can assume that I'm like reasonably, reasonably smart and, and it won't totally screw up your body. And uh, I'm offering personal training, uh, you know, lessons for uh, $20 an hour. Can't beat that, can you? So if you want a hungry, um, you know, young personal trainer who knows a thing or two and can give you super forward personal training, I'd love to hear from you. And I immediately got eight responses. So I had eight clients in a day from sending out an email on this listserv. So I didn't grow, go into it thinking I want to build a hundred client personal training company and hire a team of five trainers around the Washington DC metro area. Um, I said, I want to do some more personal training because I have this certification. How do I do it? So at, that's very similar to how Balto got started, where I started the company by building an Excel macro for myself because um, I kept screwing up my calls and I was like, if I want some reminder that helps me do a better job in my calls, why don't I build an Excel macro? So I built an Excel macro and then, you know, one thing turned another and then we started doing a business plan and then we ended up getting a 75 square foot place in a, a co-working space here in St. Louis. So I kind of fell into it. But one of the things I think you guys are getting at that um, I think is a good observation is I think uh, I do have a lack of fear. Um, I think that's that's really important. I think a lot of people are afraid to uh, one take risks because they seem very scary, but but actually the 
negative consequences if the risk doesn't go well aren't that bad. And the second thing I think people are, are afraid to do is go against the grain. And honestly, I've had to rein that in a lot. Um, you know, as I've been, uh, you know, growing and maturing, going through college and the business world, because in the beginning I would go against the grain and I didn't realize the people centric, emotionally intelligent way to do that. You know, we, there'd be a meeting and everyone would voice their thoughts and then it would go around the circle, get to me. And I'm like, you're all wrong. <laughs> and, you know, you get bit by that a couple times and then you read Dale Carnegie's how to win friends and influence people. And you then read Stephen Covey's, you know, seven habits of highly effective people. And you kind of go down that route for a little bit and you go, ah, oh, shoot, I need to communicate to people in ways that make them feel good. And uh, so that's a way that you can go against the grain, that you can do something that other people aren't doing, uh, but do it in a way where, where people uh, accept your ideas and want to champion them themselves. So like, I think the lack of a fear is maybe a personality trait that I bet a lot of entrepreneurs do have. Um, and that's the thing is when you're 23 and you have no responsibilities whatsoever besides to keep yourself alive, um, and you know, you have a job that you really like, but what's the risk? What's the risk of starting a company? You spend a couple of years, it doesn't work. You chew up all your savings, but you still have 30 years of your career left or more. So, and, and your, you know, 23 to 25 year old years are not your high earning years either. So let's go get an experience that's new and that's valuable and 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 let's go do that because the risk isn't so bad. So that's kind of how how I, I viewed it, but it, I really haven't viewed it like entrepreneurship in my veins from day one. I kind of just fell into each each one of the opportunities. Well, Mark, that's very nice. <clears throat> and I know we're not supposed to disagree with our guests, but I'm going to have to wrestle with you on this one because you just described what a real entrepreneur is. You know, I, as you're speaking, I'm thinking, here's a guy who embodies the Nike, just do it. You see a problem, you just do it. Um, and I smile when you talked about, you know, people sitting around the table coming up with business ideas. You know, there's there's a line, uh, I think well, Wills may have said it, 99% uh, of the people he's met on earth have had good ideas, some great ideas, but only a tiny fraction of them have gotten out of their chair to make those ideas real. That's what entrepreneurs are. Um, you said something else about fearlessness, which is, I'm guessing most entrepreneurs, and I'd love to your perspective on this, don't necessarily look in the mirror and go, I am fearless. They just go do stuff. So that's one thing I'd love your thought on. And the, the, the second thing is an observation, not the comment. But when you were touching before on you know, the sort of style, you know, the flashiness and stuff like that. You know, sometimes the way we describe you is 100% beef, no filler. Um, you know, all substance there. So the fearless thing, I yeah. mean, do you look in the mirror and go, who's bad? Or is it more, I'm just going to do this thing? Little of both. Little of both. So, so first of all, where give credit, I'll give credit where credit is due. When uh, I started Balto with Chris Contes, I told him no three times. He said, Mark, let's go start this business. And I said, ah, I love my sales job. I'm happy. This is great. I don't need to go start a business. And, and Chris said, oh, come on. You got to think about it. 
three times I said no. So can I say that my entrepreneurial drive just did it and started the business? No, I was friction. I was the the e-brake on that. Uh, I got lucky. I got lucky that you know somebody else in that moment was the energy and was the momentum that allowed this whole thing to happen. Um, so I think one of the things that entrepreneurs often uh, don't, when they're writing all of their attributes on the wall and they say, I'm good at this, I'm good at this, uh, I don't think lucky gets uh, in the mix often as it should. And I think there really is luck. And yes, you create it, you, you create your own opportunities, it's wonderful, but there's some times where you just didn't do anything and you just got lucky. And I, I certainly had a, a handful of uh, lucky breaks that um, you know allowed uh, Balto to, to get where we are today. Um, and then in terms of, of the fear, um, I think that the practical side of it is that it is a comfort with whatever the downside scenario is. Like whenever people are like, oh, wouldn't that be awful? I'm like, I don't think it'd be that bad. You know, so and I whenever I hear people complain about the weather, oh, it's so hot. I'm like, it's hot. <laughs> sometimes it's hot. Sometimes it's cold. It's hot right now. You know, um, so it, it's like a it, it's it's not getting flustered by things that other people may find, um, you know, uncomfortable. Um, but then as you you know develop and as your business grows and as you stack on more wins, uh, you do start to do some chest beating. I think that as long as you keep that in perspective, it's a good thing. You know, you should recognize, hey, where am I doing great? You know, and I'll tell you, I give myself performance evaluations on a, on a one to five scale like I, I do for the folks uh, on our team. And I won't tell you the number now, but I, I have a number. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that being said, you should be realistic about the things that you're doing great at. And I think that's really important. And, uh, you know, that is not arrogance, one, if it's real, and two, is if it doesn't, if you don't affect, if you don't behave inappropriately because of it. If you recognize things you're doing great at and then say, and here's things I'm not doing great at, and I'm not going to, you know, run around making other people feel bad because of how great I am at X, then I think it's like a healthy balance of being proud of the things you've done and also, um, you know, being realistic about where you have to improve. And one of the pieces of advice that you, know, you guys have given me quite a bit is also like, enjoy the journey, you know, enjoy the ride. And if you're not at least a little bit proud when something great happens and you produce a new milestone, then uh, maybe you're thinking a little bit too far ahead and not taking a step back from time to time and enjoy what you've done. Kenny Dichter, who was my boss and co-founder of Marquee Jet and now Wheels Up, but they, they just took public a few weeks ago. He had a rabbi, a literal rabbi, around in the Marquee days. And Shalom Dukman, he's very big in, the, in, in, in Chabad. And he had a line that stuck with me for 15 years now. The more real you get, the more unreal it gets. And, you know, when you sit here and talk about giving yourself self-assessment and scoring yourself and constantly challenging, and it makes me think macro of who was Mark when we first met two or three years ago and who you are today, not per se as a person, because I think you're the same person, but as a leader, as an entrepreneur, um, as a visionary, I think you've grown and evolved tremendously. And I think it's because of, 
you know, not accidental. I think it's because of a lot of work that you have and continue to do on yourself and benchmarking. How, I guess, twofold is what have you, what could you share that has worked and does work? What doesn't work? And as someone who's constant under constant time pressure, because there's endless work to be done for your business, how do you mentally divide mark time versus business time? So the, the first thing in terms of what works, it's actually, I think, the word that you said, Randy, benchmarking. You have to know what else is out there. You have to know the people, you know, I've been doing this now for uh, four and a half years. Somebody who is also great and also learning and growing and also a visionary, what does that person look like after six years? But uh, you need to know what they look like and how they act and what they say and how they think. Um, so I think the the key is like always looking for the next tier of performance. And that requires an openness to uh, change. It requires uh, realism about where you are now. Um, and it requires like a hunger to want to keep growing and want to keep making yourself better. So I think that, that it's a very simple formula. It's go look for people who are great uh, be open to what they're doing and then go do some of it. Um, so I, I think that that's probably the m most important thing there. And then in terms of balancing, uh, you know, mark time versus business time, um, obviously it's hard and there's no clear solution. Um, I, I do think about sharpening the saw all the time and you know, when I'm doing mark time, is it purposeful? So I actually have a sticky note right here and it says life plan. And it's very simple. And it says Balto, fiance, fitness. And then there's uh, a little section below that says decompress. So what are the things that I want to purposefully be doing in order to decompress? Chess, social time, reading cooking chores and podcasts and occasionally listening to Netflix. And then I also want to be doing one annoying thing at a time, right? <laughs> like going to the DMV. I always have to have one annoying thing that I got to do because otherwise I'm not being productive. So you just plan it out ahead of time. You say that's like, you know, uh, those are the things that, that are forms of decompression that are getting away from the business that I think still holistically contribute to me being the best that I can for myself and for the company. Yeah, that's super helpful to hear. And, you know, you may or may not know, Mark, when we speak about you, one of the, you know, first things we say, we think you're a great CEO, right? But we also say he's just an incredibly nice guy. And, you know, I'm blessed because my partners, Wills and Randy, are incredibly nice guys. I think I'm a nice guy. But if I'm being honest, and I've been an entrepreneur my whole life, if I could rebuild myself, I wouldn't be quite as nice. I'd be tougher. I'd be uh, maybe a little more cold-blooded. Uh, I think I would have actually been more successful. And I'm curious, is it hard to be a nice guy? And now you're leading 100-plus people building a company that's heading towards a billion dollars. Um, you know, is... Mark Bernstein, too nice. Yes. But that's a place for growth. <laughs> and 
uh, a place to, to get better. And and here's the thing is, I, I too nice, like you can kind of unpackage that, right? You can say there's nice in treating other people well. No, I'm not too nice in that I t- treat other people too well. Like that's a good thing that everyone should do. And then there's nice in terms, uh, and I think that the kind of the subtext is uh, occasionally makes um, makes decisions that are not optimal because they're thinking about how other people will feel instead of like what is going to advance the best outcome in the world. And that's true. That's something that I need to do better. So, uh, but that being said, you know, when I'm around cold-blooded reptiles like you guys, <laughs> right? That's that's the best way to to get a little bit of ice in your veins. Oh boy, that's uh, I'm going to put that description up on the wall. Testimonial. <laughs> I haven't been called cold-blooded yet today, so I appreciate that. Um, his children are still sleeping. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> if only that were the case. Fulfilled your quota early. Two, I guess, related questions. Beyond nice, what's a skill set you are looking to add? If we were doing a follow-up a year from now, two years from now, what's a skill set you hope to have added to your repertoire? And then looking even further out, you're at a time, it's time to, you know, write your own epitaph. You know, what is it, what is it you wanted to say? And, you know, is it, would it say it now? Or is there still work to be done for what you really, would, in a perfect world, would want it to say? I'll definitely do those two questions separately because that second one could be the rest of the podcast. Um, but the 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 first one of what are the other skills I want to add over the next year or so, I think probably the biggest one is is going to be it's going to be honing my sense for when the right answer is to defer to others or defer to the group. And when the right answer is say, hey folks, this is what we're doing. And it's a very difficult sense because at any time you say, hey folks, this is what we're doing, you are explicitly going against two common adages of wisdom. One is that other people know things you should you you don't know, so you should listen. And you know, and the second is that you know the group is greater than the, the individual, um, and you're going against that wisdom, and you're saying you know I, I don't even want to hear what other people have to say because I want to do it you know my way, you know or are you saying well I want to hear whatever I was to say and then make the decision individually, um, and obviously both of those are different processes because the second one you know takes let's say you've a you know five person or seven person leadership team seven times as long, and uh, you know you have to decide at what point in the thought process do you bring those people in? Do you bring them in after you've had the grand thought and now you're bringing them in and they're refining your thought? What if their thought is very different than the big grand thought you had? Do you totally change your direction or do you just try to spice their thoughts into yours? Or do you, the second you're about to have a grand thought, say, wait, nope, I don't want to have this thought without the group. And obviously, that's not the right answer in in most cases. Um, so I think just like refining the balance of uh, when do you 
uh, bring in a group and listen to a group? When do you just, you know, do it yourself? And what are all the different nuances around when and how and who? Uh, I think that's something that I want to continue to to work on over the next year. How do you, and I don't want to lose the second part of the question, but how do you benchmark and how do you score that? It seems so unique to your situation that it's hard to compare someone else's situation, even if you think they're really good at it. Two ways. One is, again, talking to other people who are really good at it. Um, and uh, you know, I'll hear how they do it. And then the second way is, well, in what ways should my situation be more similar to theirs, right? You know, why is my situation the unique special one that no one else could possibly replicate? There's definitely somebody who is either in the situation I'm in or um, that I should be more in the situation they're in. And uh, so there's, there's, there's room to move there. I think, I think that's really important is it's not just like uh, I need to go through this individual journey or I personally figure out how to take you know, feedback and also you know, champion my own ideas. It's like it's been done a million times and I have to figure out like which system do I want? Um, because it's a, it's a system, there's patterns behind it. And, uh, and I don't think it's like an individual, you know, snowflake that can't be replicated. Let's shift gears. We heard a rumor. You're the CEO and founder of a company called Balto. So maybe we should talk a little bit about that. Let's turn the clock back four or five years. There's a big, beautiful market in post-call analytics. And a lot of people who are going to start a company would turn and go, you know what? I'm just going to do it better than them. I'm going to poach their clients. But we already have an established buying uh, environment for post-call. Real time didn't exist. Like, what happened? Like, why would you go and do something where, you know, no one out there was buying it yet. Instead of saying, you know what? Let's shoot for that big, juicy target. I mean, I, again, I, we opened up by saying, are you a little crazy? I don't know. Was that, I mean, it seemed to work out okay now, but four or five years ago, I think it sounded kind of nuts. It was the solution. It was the solution. There was a problem. And you look at the current solution and the current solution, post-call analytics, didn't solve the problem. So there wasn't another solution. That was the solution. So we did that. We put the solution in place. And uh, Andy, we uh, pitched 82 people before we got our first sale because we didn't do free trials. Uh, we have a very strong no free trial culture at Balto because we want um, our customers to respect us as business partners. And in return, it uh, frees us up to do our best work, knowing that you know we're not on the chopping block. Um, so uh, we have a no free trial culture. So we pitched eighty-two um, like paid pilots at the time, and we had someone say yes on the eighty-second person. Um, so we had a solution, and we asked people like, "Would you buy this?" And everyone said no. And we pulled out the old trusty lean startup book and said, all right, what happens when they say no? You flip to the page and it goes, ah, you iterate. <laughs> so we say, ah, well, 
what would make you say yes? And that is, again, bringing in some sales knowledge, um, which is that when people are saying no, there's specific reasons that they're saying no. And if those things were to change, there's always, it's all on a spectrum. There's enough things you can change to get them to say yes. So imagine, you know, the common, uh, you know, the commonly uh, most focused on lever that people look at is, is dollars and money. Um, so they say, oh, you know, what if I gave it to you free? And if someone says no, if you give it to them free, it means that there's not enough value. Well, you could theoretically take that lever in the other direction and be like, would you use Balto if I paid you $20,000? <laughs> I think we would have gotten a lot of customers from negative $20,000. So it, there's all these different pieces that that you can move around in order for, to get someone who's saying no to say yes. And, um, and we had a solution. So the question is, how do you move around the pieces in the right way that people want to try this solution? Um, and we did. And you also have to find somebody who is uh, you know, particularly open to being the first one to try a solution uh, and paying for it. Um, and that's a very special type of person. So we're always really uh, grateful to our early customers because uh, you know they're unique and they made it happen. Um, did that did that kind of answer your question? I don't know if I went in different directions. Yeah, I'm I'm smiling listening to it because it's ringing uh, uh, little bells in my head. I, I loved you know after eighty one at bats, we got on base on the eighty second. Back uh, when I started uh, my online research company, it was the the first one on the planet, and every sales call I made for months, people would say this internet thing is interesting but it's really for techies. We're after a mass market. And to hear those words today, you'd roll over splitting your side laughing. Um, but you know, it, what's interesting is hearing the relentlessness, the then the, that theme of fearlessness, just we're, we know it's right, which leads to a question that, you know, we think a lot about, particularly in our business, because, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to do what they said Wayne Gretzky was great at, you know, Invest in companies that are, you know, building for where the puck is going, not for where it is. So if we take a look at Volto, you know, we all believe real time is where it's at. But we know how fast the world changes, you know. So if you can put on your seer hat, your Nostradamus hat, and look down the road, you know, five years, 10 years, you know, we're in a dynamic world. What's going to, what's going to be, is Balto going to be relevant in five or 10 years? Or is it, you know, we're living in a world where there are no humans doing selling anymore. So first of all, I'll leave it to you, Andy, to bring a Nostradamus reference. <laughs> and I'm a so, philosopher. I know yeah. something. And out of himself. Yeah. So uh, congratulations. You filled your quota today too. <laughs> um, so the answer I'd have for you is, is of course, Balto will be relevant um, because you don't build a company with the expectation that the company won't be needed or necessary in five to 10 years. So the question then is how? And uh, is our technology in the current state going to be uh, what is predominantly used to make sales and customer service people awesome? Will it be a different state? And the answer is that nobody knows. We have our seer hat. We have a vision. 
we have predictions of where we think things are going to go. But what a great organization needs is being highly observant to where things are going. And if you look at the puck once and you go, great, I'm going to skate there and you close your eyes and skate there and it took you 10 seconds and everyone's been doing a full hockey game in those 10 seconds, the puck is probably not going to be there. So you need to continue to, to look at it and look at it and look at it and look at it. And then with each movement that the puck mates, make your best guess. So um, there is no question that um, machines will be helping organizations go to market. <laughs> no question. And then the question is, how? And we think we have a really awesome formula that help organizations go to market. And we think that the, what we say, the atomic unit of business is the conversation with the customer. And the conversation can be a digital one. And we even say that being on a website is a conversation of source. It's just one that you planned out ahead of time, where you planned out what you were going to say. And then the customer kind of did a, uh, a you know, uh, back and forth where it's almost like a, you know, like a bat using sonar bouncing off all of your different signals. Um, but it's a conversation where you're communicating with the customer and they're communicating back with you as they take various actions on your website. So we say that the conversation with a customer is the atomic unit of business. Um, and that, you know, we're, we want to, uh, scale excellent conversations to the fullization with the push of a button. So we're going to be where the conversation is unless there's some world where the conversation no longer matters. But I'll tell you, I, I just like I can't picture um, people not wanting things uh, for less money. <laughs> um, I can't picture a world where uh, conversations don't matter with the customer. So leaning into that point exactly, real time from one lens, it's easy to think, sit there and say, real-time coaching, you know, your algorithm is getting it right. Your coaching is, you know, at or nearing perfection. The only thing screwing it up is the person taking the coaching and relaying it. And so maybe the next step or the future is getting rid of the person. But as you play that out logically, if this is all about being at that unit of the conversation, maybe you can't get rid of the person until the person on the other end of the phone is also a computer. And then it's just computer to computer to the extent that it's a person calling, it's still relevant to have a person answering. Is that, in a, not to ask and answer my own question, but I guess that's the novice outsider thinking of this. What's the more nuanced, you know, detailed thinking that you guys have about it? And that's a pretty good way to think about it. Um, so I don't think that's far off. Um, I was thinking through the other day that the concept of, you know, fully automated sales and customer service agents, and let's say it's a complete robot. How far are we from that? What would you need to do to do that? And as I thought through the complexity of what's needed to have a fully automated sales and customer service agent, I kind of realized, wait a minute, like obviously both it's going to happen at some point in the future, right? Let's imagine that we go a thousand years down the line from now. I have to imagine that technology will be available and some organizations will use it. Um, but what's going to happen first, I think, is actually what you mentioned, Randy, which is uh, fully automated coaching and management. Because um, the point of management is to ensure the performance of the people who you are managing. And I think that the different 
levers that you have to pull as a manager are in a lot of ways actually easier to automate than the levers you have to pull as the actual person doing all of the variety of things that you have to do as a sales or customer service agent. Um, so I, I think that you know, just like one day, uh, you know, not too long ago, um, you know, AlphaGo uh, beat the best Go player in the world. I think that there's a day where AI coaching can be better than the best coach in the world and can tell you exactly the things that you need and you can show an AI coach uh, produces a, a bigger lift than an equivalent human coach um, who you know is dedicating their full amount of time and attention. Um, and I don't think we're too far off from that. So um, that's the thing is I think that it's important that you have to be open to all of the different ways that technology could evolve and the ways that would make your your technology that you build and ours at Balto um, more useful and more relevant and less useful and less relevant. And you have to see where it's going and make sure that you are building in new pathways so you're always on the more relevant side. Is there, just playing this out and then, and then we might go in a different direction. Is there, you, you real time is now an evolution upon post-call. Is there a thread of an idea in your head around pre-call being an evolution around real time or is it just not work that way? It's in the works. <laughs> um, it, it's not even just an idea. Um, and you can think about um, what are the things that you wish you would know your customers were going to do. Like what if you knew for absolute certainty that person's going into this store on this date, what would you do differently? Um, the opportunities are ridiculous. And that's one of the things that AI is very good at is predictive capabilities, not with 100% effectiveness, but especially for some portion of cases that are perhaps the most pronounced AI is very good at saying this is a highly pronounced case of X and likely to result in these things. Um, so I do think that the next evolution of real time is predictive. And then, uh, you know, you can only go up to the moment uh, that, you know, there's like the natural time only moves in one direction. So you can't go backwards in time. Um, so if you're thinking about pre-call, then there, there's a whole area there, which is okay. What information would you want to give an agent or a company before a customer calls in? Imagine you could predict this customer is going to call in in the next two hours. <laughs> and, and you call in and say, uh, you know, welcome, Mr. Brandoff. Um, I understand that you had a pricing question because, <laughs> you know, because the technology was able to predict it. So uh, technology and data will be able to do pretty incredible things. And it's just... Uh, a matter of how fast we get there because it will happen it will you know you go long enough in, in the future it will i'm smiling hearing this there <clears throat> it reminds me of a, a comic i heard recently who was riffing on amazon talking about you know there was amazon two day and then amazon one day and now they're having you know with drones amazon two hour and i just found out Amazon is launching Amazon before. So before you decide you want to order it, it's delivered. I That's Ronnie Chang, and I yeah. love that exact <laughs> special. Uh, killer, killer, killer. Um, and he, what does he talk about? Um, there was this one uh, 
bit he tells um, uh, about uh, uh, you, know, you know how we want it now, <laughs> and and how uh, everything is is like I want it now, I want it now. It's uh, and it, honestly, it, it, there's an emotion you can get from that, which I think is like our inner consumer speaking. I think he captured it super well. Sounds like it's almost the Balto playbook for the future. I would not disagree with you. You know, I guess we're running towards the end of our time together. Uh, and Mark, you've been exceptionally insightful and generous. What I'm curious about if if you wake up and it's you know four or five years from now, Balto is you know, continued to do a great job, maybe six or seven years, you've sold it, you know, you, you have no, no particular worries in your life financially. And the doctor comes in and says, Mark, you can no longer be an entrepreneur. Just can't do it for whatever reason. What does Mark Bernstein end up doing? Because now you've got means, you've got, you know, internal motivation because you're the kind of guy who's not going to, well, probably not going to sit on a couch eating bonbons watching Oprah reruns, but, uh, or maybe will. What is Mark Bernstein going to do? There would be at least a year of reading, spending time in nature, and sitting in a cabin in the mountains there would be at least a year of that um then i think what would because uh, when you say entrepreneur i i wonder whether you're also counting uh you know like research and nonprofits. am i allowed to start things in general <laughs> you, that that dna is manifesting itself once again yeah if i'm allowed to start things then you know then the question is what's the next thing i'd start um and I don't know, I love space travel. I think space travel is fantastic and, and uh, just a, a really cool um, like evolution of people and what we're, we're doing as a, you know, as a species. Um, I think that um, you know, the income inequality that we have, and I'm talking about the United States in this country, um, is, um, it is just... It's a truly unfair playing field uh, for so many people. And I was talking to my fiance about this uh, last night, actually. And um, just very simply, like it is, there's, it is indisputable that a large portion of the people in this country did not start from the same place. There's clearly a large portion of people in the United States that were born into circumstances that were not as good as other people's circumstances. And that's like, that's clear. Uh, and what circumstances were they born into? Maybe uh, less access to high quality education, less access to hands-on parenting, less access to uh, nutritious food. Um, but it's very clear that not everyone has the same opportunities um, and it, they, they never will. Like we're never going to have a fully equal world. Um, but I do think that if you're born into a circumstance 
and right there from day one, like that is, um, that is like dictating what opportunities you'll have. Like that's something that we don't stand for as a country. Like, you know, we need to, what the United States stands for, I think is the opposite of that, which is no matter, you know, what circumstance you're born into, uh, that we give you the opportunities to succeed and build a wonderful life for yourself and the people that you love. So I think I'd want to do something around, uh, you know, uh, around a little bit less income inequality and trying to find ways that we can give, you know, everybody the ability to pursue entrepreneurship. And I'll tell you just a real quick story. I was in the park just the other day, and. Uh, there was uh, this the young family next to me, and uh, the uh, one of the kids in the families was wearing a T-shirt, and the T-shirt uh, had one line, and it said "rapper," and there was a line it crossed out, so it was strike through, not a rapper, and the next one said um, "basketball player," and it was scratched out, not a basketball player, and the last line, which was highlighted was entrepreneur. And I ran by them. And I gave them a thumbs up and I said, entrepreneur. And and we all just started cheering together. And and we, all, we were all just cheering together. And they said, do you hear that? You know, th that guy running by supports you as an entrepreneur. Um, and I'd like to make sure that everyone has the chance to be whatever they want to be, if they want to be an entrepreneur or if they want to be a rapper or they want to be a basketball player. But I want to make sure that everyone has the chance to be what they want to be. And I think that would be a nice evolution, a next step, um, you know, if there ever is a world where um, I am 70 years old and not still at the helm of Balto. Go for it, Mark. That's a that's a great answer, and I I think it's uh, eloquent and insightful. And uh, you know, when, when people start the race, people are not at the same starting line. We I couldn't agree more. But we'd be remiss if we let you you go and didn't end this at least talking about the fact or leaning into your experience with dealing with VCs. Now you are in the process of clo closing a highly successful Series B with named you know name venture funds. You did so with your Series A. You did so with your seed, and you know it's we know we've been a part of this journey that there's been a steep learning curve. You know, what, 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 what was I opening and surprising about working with VCs? What have you learned that will help you in subsequent rounds? And the third part to the question is, you know, most every VC I've ever met, and I think, you know, present company included, um, believes they have relevant experience and advice to offer. How do you, um, how do you learn what to take versus what, when to avoid getting overloaded? Again, we could do a whole podcast on that. <laughs> and um, we may. Yeah, we may. Um, so I think that when you're working with VCs, you have to very clearly delineate in your own head what are the things that I am pretty confident they know that I almost certainly do not know and what are the things that I know that I'm pretty freaking confident they know? And there are items on both sides of that T-chart. Um, and I think it's very easy to firmly be on one side of the T-chart. 
And and I think that's a mistake a lot of entrepreneurs make where they say, yeah, I just took the VC's money because I wanted some money. Now I'm going to go build the business the way I wanted to build the business. And it's like, ah, there's stuff on the other side you probably should be looking at. Or the reverse, you know, uh, you know, help me, Mr. and Mrs. VC. You're the, the all-knowing, successful business person. I'm going to listen to whatever you say. Uh, which, by the way, especially when you're a younger entrepreneur, it's very easy to fall into that side. So I think it's just... You know, listing out in your head, what are the things that they know? What are the things that I know? And Randy, that helps you uh, know what advice to take, right? Um, and I, I developed a rule that I start using now. Um, and it's been tremendously helpful because there are times where I've gotten advice from VCs and didn't quite understand it. And I was like, oh, if I didn't quite understand it, it must be wrong. It must be, you know, like not thoughtful. But what I actually realized is in a lot of cases, it is two steps or three steps beyond my current understanding of how to grow and scale a business. And they just didn't bridge the gap, right? Um, so the rule I developed is if uh, you ever get advice uh, that you don't understand, like listen twice and like ask them for the extra layer of clarification. Don't just be like, ah, oh, geez, that makes no sense. It must be wrong. It's like, it makes no sense. Why does it not make sense to me? Like what, how did this other smart person come to the conclusion that they came to? Um, so I think just dividing that, that knowledge of what do they know? What do you know? And being very realistic about what's on both sides of that T-chart, I think is the biggest thing that I've, I've learned from VCs because, um, you know, if I were just to list out all the individual learnings I've gotten from them, I mean, it would be, you know, we, we, we would, uh, not end on time. So um, I think it's just like you got to use that algorithm about what info to take and what info not to take. I love it. Thank you. I'll ask you offline who's, you know, what, what, what advice you've taken versus filtered from me and, and I'll learn and grow from it myself. I, I see a big wall on the side that says Randy, sayings of Randy. Um, <laughs> you know, Mark, a, a, as we wrap up, I guess, you know, Going back to the original question of entrepreneurs born or made, you know, you have. I remember we had a, uh, a uh, an event up at Colgate. It was a Shark Tank, and up on the dais were the CEO of eBay and uh, Skype and Airbnb and uh, Ashton Kusher, uh, and Ashton was perhaps the most thoughtful and articulate guy there and they and he has a fun early stage fun and they asked him you know what what are the things that for you are the hallmarks of great entrepreneurs and, and he, he said two things for sure one is grit and the other is they're relentless learners and if I was going to make a Mark Bernstein t-shirt, it would definitely say relentless learner. It would say grit. And you do one other thing, and we've seen it over the years because you've had you know challenging situations. You embody the uh, the saying, run towards the danger. So uh, you know, I, I would have to push back on you and say, I think you were born, not made, uh, as an entrepreneur. Anyway, I uh, can't thank you enough. Uh, 
and we look forward to watching you take Balto to the next level and hopefully being part of that chapter. Thank you too, guys. Thank you for everything. This was wonderful. And, uh, and I will say uh, the TIA group has been um, like a really special part of Balto's growth. And I really mean that. So uh, thank you guys for everything you've done because uh, uh, the trajectory has been different because of partnering with you. Thank right. you very much for that. And now, write that next chapter so Balto is going to be where the puck is going. Let's do it. We'll do another podcast in a year. <laughs> there we go. Thanks, Mark. That was awesome. Thank, thank you. you so much, Mark. Thank you for listening to It's the People with your hosts, Andy Greenfield, Wills Hapworth, and Randy Brenda. As always, you can follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn and at TIAventures.com. That's all for this episode, folks. And remember, it's all about the people.